He said, and there shall be signs in the sun and in the moon and in the stars and upon the earth distress of nations. I think she's a liar and I think she deserves mockery. It was something about when I put this hat on, it made me feel like Superman. Black lives are very important. White lives are very important. And to me, all lives are very important. Very, very important. Damn! This is Profane Faith, a podcast that engages faith on the margins. Faith that has been labeled profane, nonconformist, and or out there. We'll be exploring the intersections of the sacred, secular, and profane to find God. I'm your host, your boy, Daniel White Hodge. Hey y'all, how you doing? What's going on? It's your boy, Dan White Hodge, here on another week of profane faith. Oh man, alive, alive. Here we are, here we are. Well, Welcome. This is your first time visiting Profane Faith. Welcome. I always encourage folks to go back and visit and, and check out, excuse me, uh, episode 00. And then for those of you who are really like Snoopy and y'all want to know my story, all dipping in my business, uh, episode one, I talk about me and uh, where I came from and my very humble beginnings. So that's you. Check it out. You know, see what's up. Uh, all that good stuff. <laughs> but uh, how y'all doing this week? Huh? Oh, my gosh. Um, as I sit here um, recording this, um, I'm seeing on my timeline showing up that there is a suspect in custody after fatal shooting at a Pittsburgh synagogue. At least three wounded. This is what AP is reporting. Uh, this comes on the heels of a uh, bomber that has been happening, that's been going on, uh, that sent bombs, I should say, rather than, uh, and then, then they actually exploded. Um, this guy, oh man, um, I, you know, it's interesting that, because there's a couple of different things with this, with this guy. One, of course the president's denying it now and he's coming out saying that, um, this was an inside job and that, uh, you know, the left is setting him up and that it's taken away from his campaign tour. I mean, this dude is sick, man. Um, but you know, I mean, you know, I mean, he is what he said he is, right? I mean, he's uh he's he's no more than what we than what we have come to expect, right? So, um, anyway, so this guy, um I am fighting I'm struggling because I'm trying to pull up the um the uh, the name of this brother because I I was tweeting about that this morning. And um, I was trying to figure out. Oh, here we go. This is a uh, sorry. I, I apologize for that as we're sitting here. I know he's not supposed to have any dead space, but you know it's, it's podcast land, right? You can just fast forward to that. Um, but yes, uh, mail bomb suspects long supported Trump and far right ideologies. Guy's name is Caesar. He's a 56 year old, uh, and he uh, trafficked conspiracy theories, ranted about George Soros and former President Barack Obama. And so you know, if you see a close up of his van. Um, you know, he has all these stickers about Trump and, and whatnot. And so here's the thing. I mean, this was just a matter of time that this was going to happen. Um, it was just a matter of, of somebody, you know, putting these things together and making it happen. We have a president that spills out this type of hate uh, from the pulpit all the time. Um, and so it should come to no surprise, even though he was saying, oh, you know, I detest it. Yo, <laughs> I know these last three episodes have been, you know, I mean, you know, we've been talking a lot about what's happening in Washington, but it, it, it every day it's ramped up. Every day it's ramped up. This is, and for me, uh, one of the things I tweeted out this week was, you know, this is not a lone wolf. This is not, this is, this is an ongoing 
um, ideological structure. In fact, if anything, these are the, these are the ones they wanted them to find. These are the bombs that you know that that were easy to get. I mean, so this notion of you know Trump saying that the media is public enemies and that people are treasonous and that you know you need to body slam people. I mean, it's just the ongoing rhetoric. And what do you expect? Right. I mean, this was even it's funny because it's like Republicans don't see that. But yet 20 years ago, we're quick to get on the mic and tell folks that, you know, rappers are creating this culture of death and they have no repercussions of what's happening. So they were quick to point out. Right. When black folk was saying certain things. Um, but, uh, you know, it's like when Trump is saying it, oh, you know, he didn't really mean it that way. This is just the left making this thing. This is a lone wolf. Um, this guy, you know, we're not even sure, you know, he, he could be a pansy for the left. I mean, all kind of crazy stuff that is going. If you haven't followed, um, I think I mentioned this last week, but if you haven't followed this, I, I think they're on SoundCloud, but I know they're on the, in, on the web as well, but it's called right wing watch. Um, they have just, they, they just have just shows that they've recorded, uh, from right wing radio, right wing podcasts. And stuff is just scary. <laughs> you should really go check it out. I mean, when you have a, like, you know, when you have the fortitude to take all that stuff in, because it, it's no joke. It's no joke. Um, and as I keep saying, we're, we're in some dangerous times. And so this guy, Caesar Sayok, uh, he, uh, you know, and I already knew, I was like, man, just the MO, as soon as the report came, I was just like, oh, this is a white guy, you know, middle-aged white guy. Um, you know, he's, I already knew the profile. I already knew it. I already knew it because this is the narrative ongoing narrative for particularly white men particularly middle-aged white men right it's like our power is being taken from us our power is being diminished we have no voice you know we have no more say in the world and this kind of nostalgic uh a uh, 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 rear view look into the past of when things were good you know and when things were better and you know this childhood that was you know when men were men and women were women i'm just like man that, and, and, you know, I think for some white dudes, that that was the case. That was the case. Right. It's like, you know, Jesus was white. Church was white. Um, you know, I'm I'm uh, I, I watch Andy Griffith. I know it's, it's uh, the Andy Griffith show. Right. It's like, oh, my gosh, you I, I do. I grew up on it. And so it came up on Netflix. And so I've been watching it. But it's just interesting just to see how folks think what America should be. Right. One or two black folk. Not a lot. Just a few. Just enough to uh, to to help the ratings, <laughs> right? Uh, none in power, right? Victor Lewis talks about that in The Color of Fear, right? He's like, even if I see other people that look like me, I know who's in charge, right? Um, but it's just interesting just to see that it was just all white men, all the scientists, so whoever they brought on the show, people you know, people of, of authority were were all men, and it was interesting. Just you know, women cooked, they cleaned. Ain't B was the epitome, right, of what most conservative men in particular in general you know salivate over right a woman who keeps the home she sews she cooks uh, she's a homemaker she takes care of the the, of the kids um you know and ain't b wasn't you know she wasn't too sexy right although every now and then somebody wanted to get with her on the show right so uh, so it's some you know some interesting this ideology that goes around with that and just what we think of women how we view manhood um i mean it, 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 it the Andy Griffith Show is is an amazing and spectacular, uh, almost 3D representation of, of of where a lot of these men like Caesar want to go back to, um, and and go back to when we were, or at least this country. When I say I can't say collectively we, but for them it was a time where they were in power. Everything looked like them. Um, 
So it's just interesting, right? And so this was just a matter of time, like I said before, uh, that somebody took this to to a violent edge. I mean, it's just whiteness demands uh, violence to protect its whiteness. Uh, you have to understand that. I mean, that is historical. Um, so even all this talk about, oh, nonviolence and peace and peace. Like I said before on other shows, I don't know if that's necessarily going to work. I believe in the end love will win, but it may have to go through a couple of, uh, you know, physical armed battles before it does win. Um, and so I don't know. I hope it doesn't. I really do. I really do. I hope it doesn't. I really hope it doesn't come to that. I don't I don't want it to. I don't want to live in that world. I don't want to live, you know, in that in that particular society. Right. Uh, where the rule of law is mob mob rule i don't i don't want to be there i don't want i don't want to live in that you know um but i also know what history has to say and i know as whiteness is white power remember whiteness is beyond just color it is it is a culture it is an ideological structure so you can have other ethnic minorities that you know chip into it and one need only look you know no further than uh the former sheriff you know out in uh, uh, milwaukee wisconsin right you know, one need only look at, at, at folks like Ben Carson, right? We're going to protect our 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 money, right? I mean, you hardly hear anything from Ben, right? You know, HUD over there doing his thing, right? But you, you never hear anything. He's never in the news ever. <laughs> I mean, he was at that one time when you know they spent like thirty thousand dollars on a desk or something like that. Uh, but otherwise, you know, you never hear from him. And so it's just always interesting, right? It's just like we have the face, but then we don't. And it, yeah, it's just interesting, man. It's just interesting. Crazy times. I don't want to take up too much time in this intro because today, y'all, oh my gosh, I had a chance to sit down with the great reverend, soon-to-be doctor, I imagine, at some point, uh, Lisa Sharon Harper. Uh, she is, wow. Uh, this conversation that I had with her, um, and I'm specifically uh, putting this episode out now because we're getting ready, getting on to the midterm. So if you listen to this in real time, um, we got our midterms coming up. And like I said last week, vote. Um, I know I'm showing my age, but vote. It's important. It's a big thing. Take your mammy, take your pappy, take the cousins, take little Ray Ray, you know, take them all. Get them, get them out there. Get them out there. Go out there. Um, there are huge, huge strides being made uh, to make sure particularly African-American votes uh, do not count or don't even make it to the polls. So get out there, y'all. It, it is important. This is, you know, I think... Um, easily for the next uh well i mean elections have always been important but easily with the, with the air that we're in now i can easily say for the next decade uh there's a lot of work to be done um at the polls and that's just one stop i don't believe that the vote is it like you can vote and all oh, yeah, we're done no, no no we gotta we gotta keep moving on stuff but this uh yeah this this vote is, is gonna be in particular now i'll be honest i'll be honest i'll show my afro pessimism and say i am not very hopeful um, you know, I do believe that, you know, Trump will get reelected. I hope I'm wrong. Um, I hope that I, I, I get proven wrong with that. I hope that, you know, the midterms, you know, women show up, all the women who are running. I'm excited about that. That's awesome. Um, I hope there's some change that can be made, you know, through that. Um, but I just, it's, it's, it, again, it's interesting to see how these things get shook out. I, you know, I went to go see this weekend. Um, uh, I went to go see, uh, what the hate you give. There you go. And, uh, you know, I mean, it's uh, it's a moving film. For those of you who have experienced anything like that, you know, there's there's some triggers. You know, I had to take a few deep breaths in the movie because I'm like, wow, man, this is this is uh, yeah, this is this is real. This is a real deal. Um, excellently put together. I would say it really gets at the complexities uh, of where we're at, particularly with young people um, and those young people who don't 
uh, particularly those young people who live in a quote unquote hoodish area, but then go to a white school. Um, that oh, they 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 nailed that masterfully, masterfully got that. Um, and then I would say that uh, the other the other side to that is that it it, it captured. Right, the nuances of what happens when a person steps forward, right, and 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 begins to begins to speak the truth on that. Now, the ending, I will say, I won't give it away, but uh, ending. But <laughs> nevertheless, it was a good movie. Go see it. But it just got me thinking. I'm just like, well, again, what progress have we made? What progress have we made from even April 29th, 1992? What what progress? Oh, but Dan, you know, there's okay, yeah, all right. Well, I give you Wi-Fi. You know, I give you Netflix. We got that. All right. We got that. <laughs> We're good. We got Netflix. So, <laughs> right. What, what progress? We are still talking about some of the same things, right? Jobs, equality, equity. We're still talking about some of the same damn things that we were talking about over 20 years ago. So I don't know. I don't know. And it's just, you know, it's just a matter of time before the next Laquan McDonald is killed. Just a matter of time because what's changed, right? What, what has changed ideologically? So, it's an interesting movie. Go check it out. And uh, one of the reasons I wanted to bring Lisa on is because I truly believe Lisa is on the front lines. And uh, she is... She's amazing. I can't, even, I can't even break down, you know, her full story. Because she is doing stuff that only she could do. And it's, it's, it's great to see her in action. And so... Um, yeah, this again conversation. I'm just I'm just muttering now. Uh, so Lisa is a, a speaker. She is a thinker. Uh, she's from Ferguson, from Ferguson to New York, Germany to South Africa. Lisa trains, uh, leads trainings, and helps mobilize clergy and community leaders around shared values for the common good. She's a prolific speaker, writer, and activist. Lisa is the founder and president of FreedomRoad.us. And by the way, we'll be mentioning some websites. And, you know, those are all in the show notes. Um, freedomroad.us, a consulting group dedicated to shrinking the narrative gap in our nation by convening forums and experiences that bring common understanding, common commitment, and common action towards a just world. Now check that out, right? Bring common understanding, common commitment, and a common action towards a just world. This is the author of several books, including Evangelical Does Not Equal Republican or Democrat. That was on the New Free Press 2008. Uh, left Right and Christ, Evangelical Faith and Politics. That was Elevate Publishers, 2011. Forgive Us, Confessions of a Compromised Faith. That was put out by Zondervan. Surprisingly, right? Zondervan put something out like that. But they did. I don't think they knew what they was getting into. That came out in 2014. And of course, the critically acclaimed, The Very Good Gospel, How Everything Wrong Can Be Made Right. That was put out by Waterbrook, Division of Penguin Random House Publishing here in 2016. Um... She's a columnist at Sojourners Magazine and Auburn uh, Theological Seminary, senior fellow. Uh, Lisa has appeared on TV One. She's, a, she's been on Fox News, going in on them. NPR, Al Jazeera, America. Her writing has been featured in Essence, CNN, Belief Blog, uh, the National Civic Review, Sojourners, Gods and Politics. In 2015, check this out, y'all. The Huffington Post, I like the Huffington Post, recognized her as one of the 50 most powerful women, religious women leaders to celebrate on International Women's Day. Yo, that's what's up. So that's just a brief overview. Lisa goes in on some, I, I'm not even going to give it away, just history, life, um, the way we think about blackness, uh, and yeah, she's just breaking it down. So without any further ado, 
Here is the great Lisa Sharon Harper. And again, if this is your first time, like, subscribe. We're on iTunes, uh, SoundCloud. We're all over the place. So wherever you find your podcasts at, keep checking us out, keep subscribing, and let's keep pushing forward. Here it is, Ms. Lisa Sharon Harper. So uh, other than that, I figured, did you want me to promote anything or help promote anything? I know you got the book, The Very Good Gospel. Uh, what else you got coming? I know you moving and grooving, though, Doc. Yeah, there's a lot. There's actually a lot coming up right now. I mean, you can definitely um, just uh, freedomroad.us is where our where we live. It's where people can find out more about what our organization does. We're a consulting group that uh, really specializes in shrinking the narrative gap um, in order to help us to get to do justice more justly. Um, and so, you know, so you can push that. Um, Ruby Woo pilgrimage is coming up. It's not like anybody can sign up for it, but people can give to it. So if people are still interested, if they're interested in actually supporting women, empowering women, then they can check out our GoFundMe page at gofundme.com slash Ruby Woo pilgrimage 18. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Um, unless you had any other (laughs) questions for me and then otherwise, you know, I'm good to go. No, I'm looking forward to this. I mean, I really am. I really, I love the work that you do. I love your vibe. And I, and I actually, I know that it's incredibly important. Um, so no, I've just been looking forward to being on here. So I'm glad we're doing this. Thank you. No, thank you. This is great. This is great. And vice versa, right back at you. And now connect more with that here as we, we get going, but, um, yes, no, welcome to uh, profane faith podcast. Uh, Lisa Sharon Harper. Thank you so much for joining us. Absolutely. I'm just really excited to be with you, Daniel Whitehodge. Seriously, I've been I've been waiting to be on your show for like years. So I feel like I've made it. <laughs> That's right. I want to call yeah. home. It's like it's like being on Oprah. I made it. I yeah. made it. That's the way I feel. I feel like shoot, now I can legitimize my podcast right now. Shoot. Oh Aww. man. What do we first meet in LA when you were with University? Oh my God. Really? Did we? You know, that might be, that might be the case. I know that, were you at Fuller then? I was. And I got a, I got this message from my boy Craig Detweiler and he was like, hey, we're doing this screening tonight's LA Film Festival. And I got a (gasps) woman by the name of Lisa Sharon Harper. There's another historian. He was African-American from uh, Pepperdine. Do the right thing. Was it do the right thing? Oh my God. (laughs) I didn't even realize you were on that panel. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Yes. It is, oh my, I'm sorry. I don't mean to like scream in the ear of your audience. No, no. That's crazy. <laughs> That's literally like 20 years ago. I know it does. Or, I know. Maybe, maybe maybe 15 or you know, 13 years ago or so, but it was a long time ago. It, it was. It was definitely but, double digits. But I still remember that panel because it was so good. And I, yeah. So, wow. Really great. Great to meet you again. Yes, exactly. <laughs> no, I mean, that's, I've, I've followed so you funny. around since then. I'm like, man, this woman doing all kinds of great things. So this, this is, wow. this is good. Thank you. Um, Thanks so much. well, like I said, the one question I usually ask all my guests is, uh, okay. what are, what are some of the peaks and valleys from birth until now, until now, this <laughs> moment in time? And I know every single time you ask that, you must get people going, what? You yes. know, and you're like, what are you talking about? Because that's, that's kind of a long stretch to pull from. Absolutely. Um, well, I like to start by saying I was born a middle-class Black child. All right, all right. <laughs> and um, to a middle-class Black family. And, um, you know, I, I so whenever I talk about my history, I if people kind of, you know, if people don't know the Black story, then they, they usually 
they expect you to start with when you were born, but I can, I can't, I got to start with my ancestors. Right. Mm, so mm. like, cause that's who I am. I am them. I am yes. literally like that, that kind of, doesn't it blow your mind that we literally are them. Like our DNA mm. is their DNA. Mm. We would not exist if it were not for them. Mm. And so, so, you know, they literally make us who we are and they literally um, paved the road that we walk on. So I have yeah. to give honor. Um, my, my, you know, all of us have a, literally thousands of ancestors, um, thousands of aunties and uncles that stretch back. So obviously I haven't done the whole tree, but the, the earliest that I can go back in my family history is to 1680. Wow. Wow. Yes. Yes. Wow. Yes. And that is through family research. And it's, you know, it's, it is being confirmed. It's in the midst of being confirmed, but there's just too much DNA and also, um, also census data and, uh, and tax records and things like we've just done the work, um, that, that it definitely, we can definitely trace our lineage to a particular family, mm-hmm. but, but there's a point where we're not sure which ancestor we actually come from in that family. Okay. It's it, that's, that's been less able to be traced, but, but because of DNA connections, we know there's a connection. So, and also because of our last name, we know there's a connection. So it's the fortune family that um, stretches back to, to Maryland, you know, circa 1680. And, um, yeah. And so this family is so interesting. And, and I think just, and it's actually, interestingly enough, it's the, um, sub they start my next book. So my next book actually begins with the story of this family because the next book will actually be tracing family story mm. as a way for us to understand American story and our own identity in order to be able to throw off the false narrative of race and understand who we really are according to family story and our connection to land and people, which race actually obliterates that the whole category of race obliterates connection to land and people. Um, we can get into that, but <laughs> yeah, that's, <laughs> yeah, we will, we will get into that. Woo. So yeah, it's a little bit. So, so they, so they, they started in 1680 here. One of my, my, I think it's eight times or nine times. Great grandfather um, was Sambo game. Um, and, uh, he was an African man who, uh, was, uh, brought here as an enslaved person, I believe, or at the very least he was enslaved by 18, by 1687. And he had an affair with a white woman from Ireland from, from, well, I should say an Irish woman from Belfast. And this woman was actually already married to a man named George McGee. Mm -hmm. And they had a child named Fortune. And Fortune, um, at the age of 18, uh, she was born three years before the law changed in Maryland. The the laws in Maryland were being shaped. Literally, the actual constructs of race, the legal constructs of race, were being shaped at at the time that Fortune was born. So she was born three years before um, a law went on the books that said that if a white woman has, if a woman of European descent has an affair with an enslaved black man, then that woman then has to be indentured for seven years. Oh. And her and her child has to be indentured for 31 years. What? Wow. 
Yes, yes. Now, if that woman, if a mixed person, if a mixed woman had an affair with a white man, then she would also have to be endangered for seven years. Nothing would happen to the white man. Nothing ever happens to the white man in this construct. I'm serious. Yeah. It's, it's like it's, yeah. it's it's a it's laughable how 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 um, clear it is when you look in the actual laws, the way that it was set up in the beginning. But then her children would only have to be endangered for 21 years because they were they were born to a white man. So there you like the racial constructs were literally formed at this time. And you see the actual privilege of whiteness shown in the treatment of it, of of sexual relations between between people of different um, constructed races at this time. And my family, they were right in the middle of it. Wow. Um, and so, you know, uh, Fortune was, was indentured to a, a woman named Mary Day. And Mary Day um, was an aristocrat. She literally owned almost the entire county of Somerset. She literally owned almost all of that land. And it was granted to her from Lord Baltimore, the guy who actually like established Baltimore, like Maryland um, in 1677. He was like one of the first governors over Baltimore. Baltimore was, or Maryland was um, uh, established in 1634 or 1633. So, you know, right after Jamestown, 1608. Hmm. So we, we, my family, they were indentured to Mary Day. And while indentured to Mary Day, Fortune had all these kids and they like, they're showing up and there's no, there's never a father listed ever anywhere. And, um, and so I'm literally, and I'm like showing this to a friend and like, well, do you think she might've been a prostitute, a prostitute or something like what's going on? Like why maybe she was trafficked or something. I don't know. And so I don't know. I don't know. So I'm doing this research and then I finally decide, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go on ancestry.com, which I've already done my DNA there. And I'm going to look under the matches and I'm going to do a search for the last name day hmm. under the matches and see if I have any connections, any DNA connections with people who also have members of the day family on their family trees as well, which is a good sign that you have a connection, not just one or two connections. Usually that may not be not anything, but if you have like pages full, then it's probably a good, it's a good indicator that you are somewhere in that family. These are your cousins. Like you're, you're somehow you came out of this family. So I found three pages of day connections in, um, in ancestry and the matches. And for me, that's an indicator that, you know, fortune, she actually was most likely um, raped mm. by a member of the day family. And so her daughter who is who is who I believe we came through, um, her daughter was then indentured. And so she was indentured because Fortune, a mixed race woman, had an affair with a white man. And so Fortune then had to be indentured for more time. And her daughter, Sarah, had to be indentured for 21 years. So then come Sarah, now 1734, you see documents that Sarah was taken to court because she had an illegitimate child. And then you see like on all of the tax records and stuff and, and on this listing of all the free black people in, in that in summers in Maryland around this time, she's always listed with her kids, but never any men. So you're thinking, what the heck? Why aren't the, why aren't there no husbands? And so I decided to do a DNA search 
for the last name of the family she was endangered to. Oh my gosh. Yes. And that name is Fook, F-O-W-K-E. Okay. Fook, right? Uh-huh. So the Fook family, I do some research research on them. The Fook family was, you can literally trace their family line back to 700 AD. Oh my and gosh. All over Europe. No joke. One of their ancestors was literally at the Battle of Hastings with William the Conqueror, like one of his right-hand men. And a couple of generations later, one of the grandsons of that guy was actually like like double knighted um, by Henry VIII and made a knight of knights. And so like big deal, right? So, wow. so two pages of Fuchs in my in my matches. So so most likely Sarah, or at the very least, or even if it was another person who was um, another one of uh, Fortune's kids who was indentured to the Fuchs. They were most likely raped by a folk man. Now, why do I say rape? I'm not, what I don't mean is I, I, I'm not, I'm not, um, this is not hyperbole. Mm-hmm. It's the reality of power. She yeah. was indentured. She could not have said no. She can't say no. Therefore it is rape. Or, you know, so it's, it's wow. forced. It's coerced. Yes. Yes. coerced. So, so, so why do I, why did I go there? I went there because it's very strong stock I come from. <laughs> <laughs> I, hear I come that. from strong stock. We've been on this land for hundreds of years and have literally been battling the, le- the legal constructs of race since go, since word, since the first, since being born on the, uh, for, in terms of fortune. And in, since we got here, and that goes for both Maudlin from Belfast and uh, for for Sambo from most likely from Benin, and so uh, yeah, so you know the fortunes for you know once they actually got free and they were no longer indentured, they ended up owning land and um, and uh, they were free. They were free in the South in Virginia for generations, and then finally made their way up to New York and Philadelphia. And um, they have, they were some pretty, pretty amazing people. So that's one line. And um, myself in terms of, you know, uh, what, what I do. And, and I think that probably the most defining thing uh, in my life has been my faith has been the moment that I found God, mm. that I discovered God. It's kind of a funny story. <laughs> yes. Yes. Break Sorry. it down. Come on. Well, it's really a funny story. The very first time I ever prayed was also the day that I cussed the most in my entire life. Oh, I love it. I love it. You got you, you got to tell this story now. Absolutely. Hell yeah. I, I really did. I do. So, hey, you know, is it what's the name of your podcast? Again? Profane Faith. Come on now. That's right. We're talking about profanity. <laughs> Come on. So, I mean, so, so here's the thing is that like, so I was in eighth grade, we were on a camping trip and, um, you know, our, our teacher, um, who shall be remain unnamed because I don't want to get him in trouble. <laughs> I mean, all these years later. Um, but you know, he he went ahead of of all of the kids and he put the kids with like older students who were like freshmen in high school who were watching over the eighth graders. So I'm gonna think about that now. I'm like, are you kidding me? What? Oh man. So so we're all in our little canoes. Yes, I was in a canoe. And because I was I grew up in South Jersey, Cape May, New Jersey from right. junior high, junior high and high school. So we're in our canoes in the Pine Barrens, which takes up half of New Jersey. It's like the woods, like the real woods. And 
you know, we're canoeing through the woods and through the marsh and, you know, and all of a sudden we get stuck and the water runs out and it's late. Like it's getting dark. It's not quite dark, but it's getting dark. Mm -hmm. And it's not just us. There's like three, three canoes in our little group. And I had been cussing up a storm that day. I was a real cusser. And, you know, <laughs> when we, it was almost like bumper boats, like, cause we couldn't really manage our canoe. We were pretty bad at it. And so every time we bumped, it was like, rig a fracka, rig a fracka, rig a fracka. <laughs> and, you know, the whole time, and I'm in eighth grade and I had a sailor's mouth and, and then we, we got stuck in mud and I was just done and it was getting cold. And then my friend Casey got out to actually push the canoe with me still in it because I wasn't getting out. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's right. And so, because I'm black and I don't do that, right? That's so, right. That's right. So, <laughs> I, don't, I don't push canoes in mud. Yeah, you ain't lying. <laughs> I'm with so, you. But then, but then she started sinking up. To, I kid you not, this actually happened. She's alive to tell the story. Mm-hmm. She started sinking up to her hip in that mud. She, yeah. we, I think to yeah. this day, I think, I think it was quicksand or something. I've, I've had that happen before. That's just one of the reasons why I'm like the first time I did it, I <gasps> sank in right up to my thigh, and I was like, oh hell no! Uh-uh. Oh uh-uh. my god, it was the most <laughs> scary thing. And yes. we're, oh my god, so we're we're holding on to her so she doesn't get swallowed up by the mud. Oh. And then, you know, I'm all like, help! And then I start, <laughs> I start praying, God, help, God, help, God. Help. Yeah, I mean, I just was screaming, and it was the first time in my entire life hmm. that I did not care what others thought. And they were yelling at me, shut up! <laughs> <laughs> but I did not care. I was like, God help, God help. And you know, and and we did eventually get her out, and then somebody thought they saw a water moccasin. Oh Lord. And then I swear it was like the worst. Oh my god. And gosh. now, and now it's actually nighttime. Like it's like it must be about 9:30 at night. When we start hearing people further down river, because all the waters run out now, because the water has, you know, it's low tide now. Yeah. So there's no water. So we're, we're with canoes in a, in a creek and we don't know where we are. We're in the middle of the Pine Barrens. And, um, and they, we start hearing people further downstream yelling. And we're like, oh, my God. And they say, help. Oh, no. <laughs> They were lost too. So we're like, we're yelling back and forth to each other. Help, help, help. And then finally we're like, oh my God, we're all lost. How are we going to make it through the night? There could be bears out here. I don't know if there's any bears in Pine Barren, but you know, you're Still, eighth, yeah. eighth grade, you're thinking. And, um, but there's certainly something. And so, and we were at least worried of the Jersey devil, which lives out there. That's, that's the, that's the myth, but mm-hmm. it was worried about the Jersey devil. And so, but then I kid you not, then we saw a light in the darkness oh. and it was, it was moving. A light was moving through the darkness and we started yelling over here, over here. It was like 1030 at night at this point. And um, oh, the wow. light, the, the light, the person behind the light yelled, walk toward the light. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. I really, I kid you not walk toward the light. And so we did. So we we all grabbed hands and we walked toward the lights and it ended up being hunters oh. who found us in the woods in the middle of the Pine Barrens at 1030 at night. And it was about a year later when I was invited to a youth group and I started going to this youth group. And, and then, you know, one night we were drinking milk and eating donuts and I was thinking about how how corny this was, but then they asked, what has Jesus done for you? And I remembered the Pine Barrens. And I remembered 
my first prayer. And I remember, and I said to them, I said, I actually think Jesus answered my prayer. Hmm. He saved my life. Mm. And I, to, I told that story and, you know, so that's, that's, it's kind of funny, but it's true. My, my very first prayer was the very, was the same day that I cussed the most of my entire life. And um, yeah, I don't know what that means for the course of my life, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, you had good reason to, I mean, come on, man. I mean, the mud yeah, and the water moccasins. I mean, come on. Oh my gosh. Like I'm serious. <laughs> like, oh my gosh. But I, I, when I go back over my life and I think about, you know, where, where God's taken me from and, yeah. and, you know, how God is developed as God develops all people, all people who say yes to God, um, who say, yes, I'll follow. Actually, what, what you're saying is, yes, I'll be a leader in this world. I'll, I'll help steward the world. Um, and I think that the development for me has been, um, one that's been deeply shaped by my own family and their history and the foundations that they laid, which is why I started where I started. And my mom was a member of SNCC. And, you know, my grandmother um, was in the Great Migration. We were, you know, African-American. We literally experienced every part of African-American wow. history. And, um, but, but when I became a Christian, an evangelical Christian, I went down to the altar about a year after the donuts and milk in the Revelation about Jesus helping me, I went down to the altar and gave my life to Jesus. And pretty soon after that was told that I had to be a Republican. <laughs> no, like straight up. Yeah. Like straight up. Not, not by the leaders, but by my friends, my friends. Well, it was kind of, it was implied by the leaders and told directly by my friends. My friends were like, Oh no, no, no. You have to be a Republican because you know, to be a Christian is to be a Republican. And I didn't really wow. understand what, Republican or Democrat was, except kind of just marginally. Like I knew my mom was definitely a Democrat. And I asked her once, this is funny. I asked her once, why are we Democrats? Because I was, I was actually walking around with her and she was helping to get out the vote in our neighborhood, knocking, going door to door. And I knew that we had a sign in our yard or on our, on the, on the window, on our front window that said we were for Carter's 1976. And, um, and I said, mom, why are we? Yeah, I just dated myself. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I was around That's for the okay. car. I remember the, the, uh, oh. the election. So come on now. Oh, okay. All right. There we go. Okay. Yeah. So now we both dated ourselves. There we That's go. That's <laughs> right. That's right. It's That's okay. Now. There's no shame. No shame. No shame. So, <laughs> so, so Carter, right? So I said, mom, why, why are we Democrats? And this is what she said. And I swear to you, it's uh, stuck. Okay. And it's still stick. She said, well, she knew my favorite book of all time at that time, um, was I was like, I was like seven, um, you know, was Robin Hood. And so she said, well, the Democrats are like Robin Hood. They steal from the rich and they give to the poor. <laughs> all right. <laughs> the, but the Republicans, but the Republicans steal from the poor and give to the rich. So we're Democrats. And I said, oh, okay. <laughs> I'm a Democrat. So, so, and I have to say, it kind of is the, it's the case, especially now when you think about the big tax cut oh. that was, that was, um, my gosh. I mean, and now we see, we have this multi-billion dollar, um, deficit that came as a result of the I think 17, no, it's more than that billion dollars, um, in deficit because of this tax cut that is ridiculous. And it was a tax cut for the rich. Um, it's, it's temporary for the middle class, but permanent for the first, for the top 1%. And what that's done is it's taken away revenue 
So now we're in deficit, deep deficit. And um, so, and what now, what are they saying? Which is exactly what everybody said they would say. They're using that deficit as an excuse now. You mark my words, when we come around to next, next spring, when they're starting, or next fall, when they're starting to think about the appropriations budget again, yeah. they're going to be saying, we have to cut entitlements. We have to cut Medicare. We have to cut Medicaid. We have to cut Social Security. We have to cut food stamps in order to balance the budget. That's going to be, and their justification for that is going to be the deficit. So, so what she said actually really does stand in terms of, you know, who the two parties have, have um, shown themselves to be, at least as far as I see. So, so when I was told I have to be a Republican, I, t- I came home and I told my mom that I accepted Jesus as my Lord and Savior. Oh, and by the way, I'm voting for Reagan, even though I was only 14 and couldn't vote. Mm. But she said, she said, who are you and what have you done with my child? You know? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, man. Well, you know, that's interesting because it, it. I had a, a similar experience growing up. I remember watching the Carter-Reagan election on television and I just remember my grandmother and mom looking sad just when Reagan yeah. won. And, yes, I, and it was yeah. one of the first times that I was just kind of like, Mom, like, Grandma, what's, you know, what's going on? It was what's a very wrong? similar, you know, because my grandmother lived right through the 60s and 50s. And yeah. so big supporter of uh, of Kennedy yeah. and stuff. And so she, it was just kind of, it just kind of, the light started to go on. I didn't completely understand it as a kid. Wow. Yeah. But, but I knew that Reagan and, and obviously, I mean, that, you know, the 12 years of, of Reaganism that, you know, they extended through the 80s and, and you know, really in yes. the 90s. I mean, was. Yes, was, that's was right. Horrendous. Reaganomics. Reaganomics. Is, that's exactly right. You know, you know, I'll never forget having a conversation with my mom when I was in high school. There's so much we don't understand. Right. As children, we're experiencing it as children. Yeah. And so, you know, when I, I remember because I remember. I don't know if you were old enough for this, but obviously you probably were. I think I was in fifth grade when um, when Carter was in his presidency in the last year and the hostages, the Iran, yeah. Iran hostage crisis. And every single day, every day you were wondering if the hostages got released right. and, you know, and the big gas lines and all of that. And oh, so, yeah. No, I didn't know. I, I mean, it was clear to me as I was watching the news every night at like, what's that, like eight years old or something that, you know, obviously Carter was not responsible for this. This was actually something being done to him by the Middle East with OPEC and all of that. My mom, maybe my mom explained that to me. I'm not sure how I could know that at seven years old, but my mom certainly was very in tune. But, but I still saw it through children's eyes. What I didn't know at that time was how much politicking was going on in order to frame, literally to frame, um, you know, uh, Carter as this inept president and to give all the credit for the freeing of the hostages to to Reagan, even though he had absolutely Absolutely nothing nothing to do with it. Not one thing. (laughs) He literally just inherited it. But but because um, the Ayatollah was so angry at, at Carter and didn't like him, he actually um, rigged the, you know, set the scene to make it look like it was Reagan who, who, who you know, cajoled him into, um, into uh, releasing the hostages. But that was not the case at all. Man. So, yeah. But also, I mean, here's another thing that I didn't understand as a kid it, at that time that I, you know, I only really began to understand like about uh, around 2006, 2007. Um, So I went most of my adult life without knowing that the religious right was formed 
in the 70s and came to be in the early 1980s, 1983, in fact, the same year I became a Christian, they, the, the moral majority was formed. And the reason they came together was not to fight Roe v. Wade, but rather it was to fight Brown versus the Board of Education. See, see, yeah. Hello? It was yeah. to fight the impact of Brown versus the Board of Education on Bob Jones University, who had taken who had taken their own uh, case to, to all the way to the Supreme Court to fight to try to keep their campus segregated. And um, because what happened, the lineage kind of goes like this, Brown versus Board of Education, 1954. And then uh, the next year is when Emmett Till is lynched. And he isn't just lynched, he is yeah. eviscerated. He's right. eviscerated and murdered, right? So there's like rage behind this murder. And um, why? Because the way of life of the South and segregation have been disrupted by Brown versus the Board of Education. Then you have the whole next decade from 19, from 1955 all the way to 1965 is basically a, like a second civil war. It's the civil rights era and it's a war, it yeah. right? For the, for the desegregation, for, for the rights of people of color to be realized in full. And so the original culture wars, if we're honest with ourselves, did not start with Roe v. Wade and the ERA. The original culture wars started with Brown versus the Board of Education. Yes. And it was, it was the war to maintain white space in the South and white supremacy, really white nationalism in mm-hmm. the South. Mm-hmm. And right. And so then you have, we win, we win civil rights. We win, you know, the Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act. And, um, and then stuff starts to change. I mean, like codes and laws start to change. Right. And one of those codes that changes is, um, is, is some codes that have to do with education um, because of the Civil Rights Act and the reality that you can't claim to be a tax exempt um, organization, uh, even, you know, a church um, or a religious organization, unless, I mean, if, if, if you are discriminating against people of color because of the Civil Rights Act, which is founded on the basis of Brown versus the Board of Education. So when Bob Jones University gets something in the mail saying your, your tax exempt status is about to be revoked because you have segregationist policies on your campus, they go up in arms and they're all like, well, we have the right to be segregated because our faith, you know, um, says that you can't, misog- you know, no misogynization of the races. And then, you know, they finally back down a little bit and they say, okay, um, you know, never mind. We're, we'll let one black person on the campus. So they literally <laughs> took a janitor they took a janitor what? and enrolled them in, in into that school, and he only lasted one month. He is, I'm out of here, and so he left. And then they said, "Okay, we'll allow people of they didn't say people of color, obviously, we'll allow Negroes on campus, um, but they have to be married." And so the, they allowed married students, and then but they that still did not. The government was still like, "Sorry, your taxism status. This is still segregation. Um, it has to be freely used by by all." And so then they were like, okay, okay, okay. We'll allow single black people to be on campus to come on and be in our school, but they have to sign a a vow that they will not sign a contract that they will not date while they're on campus, while they're, while they're going to our school. (laughs) 
man. And every white student had to actually sign something, or it was at least at least it was policy that um, if you were a sympathizer with mixed race dating, you would be expelled. You couldn't not, not only could you not date, you couldn't Lord, be a sympathizer. Have mercy. Hello. So their tax exempt status did not, you know, it was still going to be revoked and they took it all the way to Supreme Court. And who rallied for their defense? Jerry Falwell, mm. Jim Baker. Yeah. All the people that we now know as the founders of the religious right. They rallied around Bob Jones and the very, and they also got Ronald Reagan to rally. That's how Reagan won is that he promised to help Bob Jones University when he, when he got, um, when he became president. And the very first thing he ever did when he stepped, you know, into the, into the Oval Office, the first thing he did was to visit Bob Jones University and throw his support behind them. But it didn't work. They still lost their case in 1983, 1983. So, yeah. So, so when you think about that, I I go back to the time when I became a Christian in 1983 Uh And I was told that I had to become a Republican in order to become a Christian, in order to, to remain a Christian. I mean, think about how warped that is. Yes, absolutely. It, right? I, yes. <laughs> yes, it is. I mean, think about, think about the reality that what they're saying is that in order to be a follower of Jesus, the one who confronted the kingdoms of men and told them, yeah, you hands off the image of God. The one who said, I came for the oppressed, right? That Jesus, they said, in order for me, a black woman to be a follower of Jesus, I had to be in line with a party and a candidate who vowed to protect segregation. <laughs> and, it, yes, I mean, and this Hello. is I, and this is the stuff, Lisa, that I, you know, that that I love that you're breaking this down in this history because there are a lot of folks, one who never heard of any of this, who don't right. understand. Most it. people I mean, haven't, right. sure. And and number two, it is as Cornell yeah. West has said, it is the United States of amnesia. I mean, we forget. Yes, yes. That I mean, well, I mean, you think about the Iran uh, Contra scandal. I mean, in the '80s, pales in comparison to what we're going through now. But nevertheless, people forget that th- those people, right. you know, that were in government yes. are back in government. I mean, you know, it's like the exact same people, actually, <laughs> the exact same people. People who were in, on that on the Judiciary Committee, um, you know, for Anita Hill, oh, are the yeah. exact same people who were on the Judiciary Committee for, uh, you know, for for Brett Kavanaugh and um, Christine Blasey Ford. I mean, that, that just blows. You gotta blow your mind. I mean, truly. Yes. And, and the thing is, here's the thing. Come on. You have 81%, hello, we're going to go there, of evangelical, white evangelicals, and a good number, hello, of Hispanic evangelicals. Yeah, 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 come on. And even some black evangelicals who voted for a man who began his campaign by saying, Mexicans are rapists. And in the middle of his campaign, encouraged his the crowd at his campaign rally to beat up a black woman. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. encouraged them to punch 
and, and kick a black man and said, I'll pay your legal fees and uh, promised yep, yep, a yep. wall when Jesus himself was a refugee and asylum seeker in Egypt. You know, we, we, I, so here's what I'm getting at is that we in the evangelical church, I mean, at the very least, at the very least, from the time that the religious right rose in 1983 to present, we have had absolutely no sense of public ethics. We have had no teaching on what it looks like to live as a Christian in the world. We are, all of our teaching has been focused on getting people into the kingdom, but no one has ever taught us what the kingdom requires of its citizens mm. and what the kingdom looks like when you get there. And what the scripture says mm, mm. is that what the, what the kingdom looks like when you, when you get there is it looks like the lion laying down with the lamb. It looks like people beating their swords into plowshares. It looks like um, Jesus proclaiming, I've come not for those who sip at Starbucks every day, <laughs> but for the oppressed. <laughs> Hello, somebody, right? Oh, mercy. So, right? <laughs> so, so you would think that our scripture was written at Starbucks, the way that we preach it, the way that we talk about it, the way that we talk about Jesus. But our scripture was not written at Starbucks. Whoa. It was written by oppressed people for oppressed, brown, Whoa. indigenous, colonized people. Whoa. And until we can read the text from the lens of indigenous, colonized people, we don't get it. We don't understand it. Oh. So therefore, we can be in the pocket of a party that is actually diametrically opposed to Jesus. Woo! Mercy. I man. That uh wow. Right. I didn't have that written down either. No, I know you did. <laughs> I know you did. But that's for real. That's how I feel about it right now. No, and I'm not I, holding back because we yes, we are we yes. are basically taking we are taking the witness of the church and we are, we're desecrating it. Yes. Yes. I am so with you. I'm, I'm feeling, I feel in the same yeah. pocket of what you're talking about, Lisa, is that yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't hold back. And you know, now that I've got tenure, I, I feel a little bit more emboldened to say, you know, some, well, some, some shit, go on. right? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> so, um, but well, it is profane. That's it. You know Go what I'm on. saying? Yeah. So, no, that's right. I mean, because at the end of the day, I mean, I, I guess I feel like, and even this last book that I just did, I feel like at the beginning of the book, I just say, I don't have answers. This is not going to be an evangelical three point, five point Calvinistic, whatever at the end where yeah. you go away feeling, oh, if I just do these things, no, no. I'm sounding the alarm. Like we got yes. some major problems. So I'm curious. Good. I mean, I'd love to hear your thoughts on, you know, just the whole Brett Kavanaugh thing. I mean, that just Woo! seemed like a hot dumpster ass fire. Okay, so let's go there. Yes. So, you know, so I actually, I just had an article come out in, in Sojourners. I'm really proud of it because it's a feature story. Mm. And, um, and, and, and here's the deal is that Brett Kavanaugh is in office because Donald Trump is, is king. Yeah. Brett, yeah. Brett Kavanaugh is, is, is not in office, but is, is a Supreme Court justice because Donald Trump was elected. Donald Trump was elected because of the culture wars. Donald Trump was elected because evangelicals voted for Donald Trump, even though he is diametrically opposed 
to the person of Jesus. So catch that. <laughs> yeah, come on. Evangelicals yes. who say that they believe they are the most faithful because they have, they believe in the four points of the four spiritual uh -huh. laws. They are the most spiritual because, well, just because they are, because they declare that they are. White evangelicals voted Donald Trump into the presidency. And, be, and because they did, Brett Kavanaugh is in office. And the reason they did is because of the culture wars. And the culture wars are not about abortion. They might, even, they might even think they are, but it's not. In fact, let's break this down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The culture wars and abortion the, the decision to, to, to make the rise of the religious right revolve around abortion was one that was made around 1983 when the rural majority became a thing. And, but, in, but before that, in 1974, 1973, um, when Roe v. Wade was first, you know, when the judgment first came down, the Southern, the Southern Baptist Convention actually issued a statement hailing the decision as a just and right decision. Hmm. The Southern Baptist Convention. Well, how, what happened? Well, the Southern Baptist Convention was taken over by the religious right in the late 80s, early 90s. And so now we think of them as the most conservative denomination, but they weren't. They were taken over by, by, uh, by that, by that, that uh, fundamentalist strain. Hmm. But it was that fundamentalist strain around the early 1980s that, that looked around and saw that there was some discontent around Roe v. Wade that was kind of growing, burbling. And you can hear more, you can read more about this actually in Randall Balmer's book, Thy Kingdom Come. Yeah, and he yeah. also has a really great article in Politico that really breaks this down. So if you want more information on this, definitely read, um, read those two things. And then you can definitely read my article in Sojourners. Um, for to, which I believe I take it forward to right now and, and um, the Supreme Court. And so what, what's happening is you have people who have been fighting to maintain white space, the superiority of whiteness for the, all of the 70s in response to the gains of the civil rights movement of the 60s. And so they are trying to, to beat back the impacts of the civil rights movement. So that culture war is still happening. It's the yeah. war between, between the white Southern way of life, which is a culture. That's what culture means. It's way of life. So the way that's what they, how they always said there, you're disrupting our way of life. So there was the white Southern way of life and this new thing called civil rights, which actually wasn't new. It's actually from the 13th, 14th and 15th amendments established right after the civil war. Hello. Right. So that was the struggle. But after, after Bob Jones won, they knew that they could not actually still fight on the basis um, of, of race. You can't now, you know, try to get a segregated world. You can't because it's just not gauche anymore. These, they realized they kind of lost that. But if they were going to win, they just lost in the Supreme Court. If they were going to win, they had to win the Supreme Court back again. They had to get a conservative court. Oh, come on. Oh. The conservative court is the only court that would be able to turn back Brown versus the Board of Education. And they hadn't had a majority conservative court 
since Plessy versus Ferguson. And that's how Brown happened because they had independents that actually swung. So they needed a, a majority conservative court in order to turn back Brown versus the Board of Education. So what happens is they are now, they fight for that. But they say it's about Roe v. Wade. <laughs> yeah. Well, and they it, get evangelicals to rally around Roe v. Wade. Mm-hmm. Yep. And it does the same thing. But here's the thing. I'm sorry. I just got to finish this No, no, thought. no. No, get it out. Absolutely. <laughs> Roe v. Wade. When If you overturn Roe v. Wade, friends, you will not end abortion in the United States. Nope. It just doesn't do it. Nope. Roe v. Wade sends the decision back to the states. And what happens when it goes back to the states? It means that it becomes a 50-state uh, war, a 50-state strategy. In other words, in order to, to end abortion in the United States, you have to fight it in all 50 states. And most states with the highest populations of people, California, um, New York, Florida, these are the places that are, have already said, we are not going back. We're not going to overturn. We're not going to make abortion illegal. They have the highest populations. Because they have the highest populations, they also have the highest percentages of poverty. And one thing we know that the stats bear out and that everybody now knows is that abortion follows poverty. That uh, mm. when abortion, when poverty rates rise, abortion rates rise. And you can see that whenever the poverty rates rise in America, you have rising abortion rates. Whenever the poverty rates fall in America, the abortion rates fall. Wherever you have high rates of poverty in cities, those are the same districts that have the highest rates of abortion. People love to point to, well, what about black abortion? Black people are aborting their yeah, babies. Yes, yes. Wait, black people are impoverished. It, and it's not all black people. They always love to point to East New York. East New York is the, is the poorest congressional district or area neighborhood in New York City. So it does. Yes, it has the highest abortion rates, but that's because it also has the highest poverty rates. People are actually, get this, they are making economic decisions about how many who, um, mouths they can feed in their family. Now, mm. is that a justification? Not necessarily, but it is a reason. So if you want to end abortion in America, then you must end poverty. But the thing is, mm. if, you, if you flip, um, if you flip uh, Roe v. Wade and you, and you make abortion illegal, the states that are going to be impacted are actually some of the poorest states. They are the southern states. And they're the states that have the highest populations of impoverished black people. Yeah. So what's yeah. going to happen there? It's not that abortions will stop. It's just that more black people will have abortions. So you actually, you, you're more likely to make the abortion rate rise by, by, uh, by ending abortion, by overturning Roe v. Wade, because not only, it's not just overturning Roe v. Wade, it's having that majority conservative court. So just follow me for a minute. I know I've been going for a while, but- No, no, this, is, this is what it's all about. Oh, thank you. Follow me for a minute. So ask yourself, 
just consider this. I had I asked myself this question back when um, Justice Anthony Kennedy decided that he was going to retire, and I was asking myself, who would be the best like composite person to come onto the court to take his place? And I asked myself, would would a conservative justice? What would be the impact of a conservative justice to take his place? Well, what that would do is it would actually create a conservative majority on the court. And we've never, like I said, we haven't had a conservative majority since Plessy versus Ferguson. Now, whenever you've had a ruling that has had a majority conservative ruling, in other words, you know, four conservatives and one, one independent that swung their way, when you get that on the court, inevitably, none of those rulings in the 228 year history of the court, none, not one of those rulings has ever explicitly protected the rights of people of color. None of them, none. Oh, wow. So if past is wow. prologue, then with a conservative majority court, what you have to look forward to is rulings that will not protect people of color. Mm. And what we've actually seen is it's not nominal. It's actually actively negative. So over the last decades, what we've seen is we've seen rulings that have whittled away at the gains of the Civil Rights Act by whittling away yes. at affirmative action. Yes, yes, yes. In 2007, we saw a majority conservative ruling that had a, a ruling of four of four conservatives and one independent rule in the case of Seattle schools um, versus parents of children in, in community schools um, that de facto segregation is okay. It's not, it's not unconstitutional. So that is a whittling back of Brown versus the board of education. So now we have a, we have a conservative majority. Now that Brett Kavanaugh has gotten onto this court we have now a conservative majority that is entrenched and will be there for 30 to 40 years. Yes. Uh, yep. I was just telling somebody that. Yep. For two to three generations. And there is only one major Supreme Court ruling that all of the civil rights legislation is established upon. Brown versus the Board of Education. So as they have 40 years to whittle away at Brown versus the Board of Education, what do we as people of color, and I don't just mean black folk, I mean black, Latino, yeah. Asian, yeah. Yeah. I mean immigrants, I mean religious minorities, I mean sexual minorities, I mean gender minorities, I mean anybody, I mean women, Anybody who is not a white man, do you know what you have to look forward to for the next 40 years? Mm. Con constrained rights. Yeah, yeah. A whittling away of rights and, and protections of rights. I mean, even, even the gutting of the Voting Rights Act, that was just five years ago. Right, yeah. That, yeah. that was a conservative majority. Yeah, yeah. That did that. So with 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 the help of one independent that swung their way. So that is that that those were the stakes with Brett Kavanaugh. That those were the stakes. 
And so it is terrible in my mind that we let this become about Christine Blasey Ford because it wasn't about Christine Blasey Ford. It was about whether or not this justice, Brett Kavanaugh, had the character not to be a political, an instrument of a political ideology on the court, but rather one who could truly operate independently. And from his email, um, his emails that were that were discovered in the course of the of the investigation, yeah. the, the the not not the Kirsten Kavanaugh, but the one before that, um, from his previous rulings and also from briefs that he had written for other rulings, it's clear that. He literally has said that affirmative action is just race baiting, um, racial, I, I can't remember the actual language that he used, but it's, it's basically like um, set, a racial set aside, racial set asides. Um, he doesn't believe in the sovereignty of Native American nations. He's made that clear in, in a brief about Hawaii. Um, Hawaiian natives and their whether or not they should have the rights to have sovereign rule over their own elections, as as in um, in alignment with the with the um, what was already established in their treaty with the United States. He said we don't need to abide by that treaty. Um, he has a track record already of not supporting. Brown versus the Board of Education, because all of that stands on Brown versus the Board of Education, which yeah. guarantees equal protection of the law. So, so, so what do we do? So what we do, what we have to do is we have to vote because there's literally no other, there's no other recourse now. We have to vote and we have to vote. We have to vote for the least of these in this election. We have to vote not for our own interests, but for the interests of those with the least power, those who have the most to lose. We have to vote for Native Americans. We have to vote for Black people. We have to vote for women. We have to vote for the disabled. We have to vote for the aged. We have to vote for those whose whose minority statuses and also, um, well, in some cases, we are the actual majority if you put us all together, but our lack of actual systemic and structural power leaves us with less power. So we have to come together and vote for their interests in order, in order to make things right. The only way to make things right now is to actually go back and make things right to investigate Russia, to allow the, the, um, the wrongs that have been done in darkness to come to light and to allow justice to be done, to investigate the Brett Kavanaugh decisions that were made. There were decisions made by Grassley and Trump in the structuring of the hearings without an investigation and then a, a, a rigged investigation when it did happen with only nine witnesses, when there were 40, more than 40 that came forward and said, I want to testify and I would actually support um, Christine Blasey Ford in my testimony if I did. And they were not allowed to be interviewed. The president banned them from being interviewed. Right. Yeah. Literally, yeah. literally prohibited the FBI from interviewing them. So we have to go back, we have to vote 
in a Congress that will actually stand up to this president because the current Republican Party, according to Republican stalwarts like George Will and others, this Republican Party has actually given up its Republican card and now it is just a Trump card. Yes. And that Trump card is doing evil. It's trumping all over the, the, the Constitution and, and our values. And quite honestly, it's trumping all over evangelical faith. And evangelicals are letting them. Mm. Oh, my gosh. This is, man, you you laying it on thick. This is what I'm talking about. <laughs> <laughs> I know. This oh. has been a long one. <laughs> no, this is good because I think, I mean, this is a lot of the stuff that I've been processing and thinking through and trying to mull over and... Yeah. Yeah. A student said it today, literally today in class was just like, he's like, it's hard to keep up with everything that's going on. Cause it feels like the minute you even think about getting your head around one issue, then you got mm-hmm. five, 10 more that have just popped up, which are even more than the one you were trying to get your head around. And so, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But you know what? So here's the thing, like yes. tell your students this and also listeners, yes. here's the thing. Cause it can feel really overwhelming, but remember it's all coming from the same source. So there is actually some thinking behind this. What we need to do is we need to start looking for patterns. Don't, don't, don't take one thing as one thing. Look for the patterns between them in order to understand what is the strategy that is being worked here. So what is the strategy? What is the purpose of it? And also look at what's being put up front and then look at what's not being put up front with the things that are happening. Like, for example, for the last several months, if you watch the news any given night, you would think that the enti- all of the news in America is about Russia or about Brett Kavanaugh, right? So those are the two major things, Brett Kavanaugh and Christine Ford and Russia. Well, meanwhile, you know, meanwhile, back at the ranch, um, in, in March of this year, um, uh, one of the courts actually outlawed um, the internment of, of children, and the separation of children and and demanded that the Tornillo uh, uh, internment camp, basically, is what it is, that the Tornillo internment camp be dismantled. And, you know, the Trump administration, everybody, they said they would, they said they were in the middle of it, but quietly since March, they had a hundred and something children in Tornillo in March. Do you know how many children they have in Tornillo now? They have more than... 2,000 children oh. in Tornillo right now. They have been filling that camp with children, an internment camp, under our noses, on our watch. And it's because it's like, you know, it's that it's that magic trick where you put the ball under the thing and you shift it and you're like, okay, so where's the ball? Where's the ball? Or you put something in your hand and you put your hands behind your back. Okay, where is the, yeah. where is the thing I just put in my hand? That's what he's doing. That's what he's doing. So it may not be in the news, but it's still important. Children are still in cages. Babies are still in cages. And in fact, children as as young as six months old are having to appear in court and without a lawyer and fight their own defense. As low as two years old, having to appear in court without a lawyer. And 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 defend themselves why they should be why they should be granted asylum. It's profane. Yes, absolutely. The literal definition, absolutely. 
Yeah. So, you know, it, we don't, what I, what I said to my friends when we were organizing, um, we were organizing the call to pause back in the summer, back in July, when, when Anthony, um, uh, Justice Anthony Kennedy decided to step down, um, I organized uh, 35 faith leaders, 17, 18 women and 17 men to issue statements about why they believe evangelicals need to pause the culture wars in order to think before we support a, a conservative, any conservative justice to take Justice Anthony's seat. And it was during that time that, I mean, I heard from my friends when I was calling them up and saying, hey, we need to do this. I heard from, from amazing, awesome people, you know, it's all going to be bad anyway. I don't see what the, what, you know, what's the use of us actually saying, doing anything or saying anything, or at least I'm just so overwhelmed because it's just a new thing every day. And what I said to them then still stands. We do not have the option of freezing now. Yeah. Can you yeah. imagine if they froze during the abolitionist movement? Like, yeah. Can you imagine mm. where we would be if they did nothing, if they said, well, it's all just too overwhelming? Yes, it was overwhelming. <laughs> but yeah. the future, our future descendants depend on us not freezing. Mm. And quite honestly, if you're in the church today, the witness of Jesus in the world depends on us not freezing. So we have to find one thing, one way that we can engage and do it. Wow. Man, oh man, alive. This is, and woman alive and non-binary alive. This is, this is, I mean, yeah. you have, you have laid it out. I mean, cause yeah, I mean, that was going to be one of my questions. Like, what, you know, what what drives you now? What motivates you now? I mean, but that's clear. Absolutely. It's like, you know, we don't we don't have the privilege. We don't have the the option of, of well, I mean, we, people do have the option of freezing, but it's like we don't have the privilege. I mean, it's time to, what does that, what does that look like practically? I mean, I know I want to be conscious of, every, of your time particularly, um, but what what might that look like? Because what are some of the work that you're doing right now? Um, and, what, and, and what might that look like in, in a broad yeah. spectrum, right? You know, it's like, so, yeah, yeah, go ahead. I think that on we're working on two levels. We are working on both the mostly the long-term level. Freedom Road exists to do that deep shift work. Um, not deep shit, but deep shift. Well, maybe it's deep shift because of the deep shit we're in right now, right? So um, but we we do deep shift. In other words, we are working to shift narrative, the, the narratives that we find ourselves in. So we have to get educated, y'all. We have to understand the story that we are living in and not allow people to shape false narratives to allow us to think that we're living in one narrative when we are not, when actually behind their back, you know, they are enslaving people, they are caging people when they're telling us they're making America great again, right? So that's, we can't allow false narratives to live. And then the second thing that we're doing, so we're doing that through pilgrimage, that's the most uh, impactful way for us to actually do some deep shift. Um, we can we can immerse ourselves in the stories of the other. And there are lots of ways to do that. We can actually do that through getting on a bus and rolling through the story itself. And that's what Freedom Road actually specializes in. But we don't have to go that far. That's a, that's a high investment. That's like, 
if you really want, if you really want to move your congregation or community forward, do a pilgrimage. But you don't have to start there. You can start there with a book, like reading books by people of color, by watching movies by and for people of color in order to understand their narratives, how they see the world. And for people of color, we have to understand our own history better. We didn't, if you don't know, if you didn't know the history of how the religious right formed and how the culture war did not start with Roe v. Wade, it started with Brown versus Board of Education, then you don't know your history. Yeah. And because this is your history, it's not just religious right history. This is your history because it's the fight that is fighting against you. It's fighting against us. So we have to understand these things. Um, and so we we have to educate ourselves. Um, we have to we have to be and we have to be listening to our elders because they hold the stories. They actually know because they lived it. That's the value of our elders. That's one of the highest values of our elders is the actual stories they lived. That we are so busy trying to prove we know everything, we're not listening to them. If we would listen to them, we would understand what we're living right now because it's just another re- reiteration of what has come before. In their in their heydays, um, it looks different, it barks different, but it's the same dog. And so, you know, so <laughs> it's the same dog. Oh man! Well, this is this has been great. I mean, I man. And wait, one more thing. Yeah, I'm no, not done. Come one, on, one more, right, yes. one more thing. Yes, I did. I'm not done. And you have to vote, and you have to bring your grandma to vote. Yeah. Yeah. And you have to bring Bebe to vote and you have to bring your cousin to vote and you have to you have to vote and you have to get people to vote and you have to absentee vote. In fact, that's the best possible way for you to do it right now is to absentee vote if you still have time. And you do. Uh, at least in my state, you have to have your your absentee ballot has to be in and in, in, into the center by voting day by November 6th. You need to check the check the regulations in your own state and know when that absentee ballot um, ballot needs to come in. And a good way, an easy way to do that actually is to um, is to go to turbovote. I think it's turbovote.com or .org. So just try both of those. Turbovote.com, I think it is, or .org. But TurboVote, what they do is they make voting really super easy. And you can actually sign up for your absentee ballot there. You can register to vote there. Um, the deadlines for registration to vote are actually literally passing this week. So make sure that you are registered to vote if you're not already. And if you aren't, TurboVote.com. I think it is .com, actually. Um, and uh, and so vote. That's the only way. That really literally is the only way this gets turned around right now within the mechanisms that our country has within our democracy. Yes. Now, that's just, that, this is good. I mean, this is all good. I mean... <laughs> I'm sitting here thinking to myself, I'm like, yeah, I need to get some more of these folks out to vote. Yes. Put them in the car and take them on down to the voting polls. That's right. Everybody. Absolutely. No, absolutely. Um, Make it a party. Yeah, yeah, there you go. See, exactly. Exactly. I mean, let me ask you this then. Do you think uh, Trump's going to get reelected 2020? No. Okay. Break it down. I, I don't. In fact... In fact, you know, my hope is that he won't be around in 2020, um, that by then he will be impeached. But impeachment does not actually kick him out of office. It just takes away his, his ability to do more damage. Um, but, but, you know, it's too early to talk about impeachment. I think what we really need to do is what we need to do is we need to ask the question of how we are going to organize 
in order to have the most just future we possibly can. So why, why would I say I don't think that Trump is going to win in 2020? Because I actually do still have hope. It's hope against hope, but I still have hope that enough people will see the light within the church, will actually meet the real Jesus, the brown colonized indigenous Jesus, and they will begin to follow him to justice. They will begin to follow him to shalom. They'll be able, they'll begin to say yes to the actual kingdom of God, the kingdom of God that, that requires of its citizens, at the very least, that we protect the image of God within our borders and all over the world, all over God's world. And so, you know, so I have faith. And so that's how I can say that, no, Trump will not be president in 2020. And I also say, the reason why I say that is because part of me doesn't want to even go there because it would literally be catastrophic for our nation if he was, let alone for people of color. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it was yeah. catastrophic in 2016, but I can't imagine what that's going to look like in 2020. Yeah. Um, it, the great Reverend Dr. Katie Cannon says, you know, to do the work mm -hmm. your soul must have, even when people call your truth a lie, tell it anyway. Um, and yes. I feel like that is a lot of what you, all of what you have been doing. And I just, I, I just appreciated your work. I have appreciated your work. I continue to appreciate what you are doing out there because you are literally on the front lines. And I don't know if enough people know that, especially my listeners listening right now. Lisa is on the front line. I mean, this is, you're like there. This isn't like social media. Yeah, you're on social media, but this isn't like hashtag, like you are there. You're in D.C., you're in Baltimore, you're in Ferguson, you're in Miami. I mean, that's amazing. I mean, that quite literally, and I'm not, not trying to be like, oh, yeah, you know, you know, touch the hem of the garment, whatever. You know what I'm saying? I mean, this. <laughs> I don't even I, have a hem, so we're good. <laughs> I hear that. I hear that. I mean, that's, that's amazing, you know, this day and age, because there is, there is so much. So, I mean, that's, this is a good word. You've, you've actually encouraged me. This is, this is mm -hmm. good. Because I haven't. I mean, I, you know, I, you know, I having been a part of kind of the first round of the hip hop generation, I mean, and having, you know, been through the. Up LA uprisings in '92, and seeing the organizing we did then, and to only see that you know we've we're right back to square one, even be past square one, we're negative square five and stuff. And so, I, yeah, it's been a little hopeless. It feels that way in certain regards. But this is you're right. I mean, and you know, and, and I've been voting. I mean, I've, I think I've missed like two elections my entire time since I've been eligible uh, to vote, and only because it was I was moving and I didn't get my stuff in on time. But yeah. Yeah, I know. Me too. I missed one. I missed one election. I felt so guilty. I was like, oh, my I know. God. I know. Oh, no. You know, it felt like being late for class and getting a pink slip in fifth grade. I was oh, like, oh, no, yes. I'm not going to make it to the high school I want because I got one pink slip. I literally sat in the hallway and cried. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> my whole future is ruined because I was late to class one time. Oh, my but, you know, it's There's there's always tomorrow. And honestly, you know, my the real source of my hope is the reality that that God is. like. The reality that God is, and what I know about our God from the first page of the Bible is that God cuts the darkness. God limits darkness. Mm. God limits the deep with land. Um, the darkness, you know, literally is translated destruction, desolation, all the D words. Um, and the deep was the place where, um, if you're, if you believe if that that Genesis one was written by the Babylon, the priests coming out of the Babylonian exile then you understand the deep was the place where the, the gods of Babylon 
of their oppressors lived. And so it was the place that they feared the most. It was the place, the source of their oppression. And God in Genesis 1 limits the deep with land. And so, you know, we are in dark times. We really are. But what does the scripture say? You know, the darkness will never overcome the light. And because God is, I know that this, this, you know, darkness may last for an evening, but the sun rises in the morning and Sunday is a coming. I just mixed about three different metaphors there, but you get it. Yes. <laughs> yes. It's true. Oh, man. It's no, absolutely it's true. 100%, 100% true. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. Well, the, definitely the midterms are coming. Um, like I said, I'll post these links in the show notes. Uh, where, can, where can folks find you? Where can, you know, they, they, they bring you out, you know, to, to come do some, some organizing in their neighborhood? Absolutely. Well, you can definitely reach us at freedomroad.us, freedomroad, all one word, dot U-S, but we don't say U-S because it's actually beyond, you know, we we minister around the world, um, and but so dot us. And um, when we, when we, uh, when you, if you want to bring me to speak, then go to lisasharonharper.com. So lisasharonharper.com is another place where you can find me. Um, and always on Facebook and Twitter, tweet to me at, at Lisa S. Harper or Instagram as well, Lisa S. Harper. Um, and Freedom Road is on, uh, we have, you know, on all the different, all the things, all the social media platforms. But we we would love to partner with you. And, um, you know, so follow and let us know that you're following and let's have some conversations online. Yes, absolutely. Well, this has been amazing. And I know we've just, I feel like we've just scratched the surface. I have so many, I'm going to have to go back and listen to this myself and be like, oh yeah, 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 yeah. That's right. That's right. That's right. Um, <laughs> I would definitely hit you up for maybe around two, maybe after the midterms and see where we're at and see, you know, yeah. all that good stuff. Yeah, definitely. And honestly, y'all go vote and then pray. So mm. you know, cast your vote and then pray for the rest of the day. Pray that more people, more people vote and that God would hold back the hand of Satan. They would mm. want to limit the capacity of people to exercise dominion in our land by, by suppressing the vote. So that is really, that is a satanic thing to do to suppress the vote. Yeah. Because in a democracy, the vote is the most uh, fundamental way that we exercise dominion. And that's something that is a human right given on the first page of the Bible. So, so vote and then pray. I hear that. I hear that. Well, Lisa, I better shut up. I can keep it no, going. No, no, no. This is good. I just shoot. I, I, like I said, I can keep it going. That's the thing, man. I've got yeah, it's so, true. It's so true. Many, oh my gosh! But this, this is this has been amazing. I thank you yeah. for the time and and for taking it and and uh, blessings as you continue to do the work as you continue to on that front line on that on that you know on that firing line. I mean, you like I said, you you there. Thank you, brother. Thank you. pilgrimage about three years, no, thir 13 years ago. And that pilgrimage changed my life. 
In that pilgrimage, we went across the northern south for the first uh, two weeks of this one month pilgrimage. And then for the second two weeks, we went across the deep south. When we went across the northern south, we went across the Cherokee Trail of Tears. And then the second two weeks, we went across the African experience in America from slavery through civil rights. And when we went across these things, we were asking one major question. What does the gospel have to say to this? What does the gospel of Jesus Christ have to say to the most evil stuff that ever happened on this land? That's what we were asking. And so I got to the end of that summer and all I could remember, all I could think of was how would my own ancestors respond to the gospel? Because you see, my ancestors, according to our family, oral tradition walked that trail of tears. And you see, my family, according to DNA, tells me that we were enslaved in every single state in the South. That means that our family was broken up and carted out to every state in the South. And I imagine myself at the end of that summer saying to my third great-grandmother, Leah Ballard, the last adult enslaved woman in our family, great-great-great-grandma Leah, I have good news for you. I'd knock on her door, I'd tell her good news. After the fifth time she had been raped that day because most likely she was a breeder. And that meant that she probably, she was, her job on the plantation that she never got paid for was to breed money for her master. And she was in South Carolina. She had 17 children. At the end of the Civil War, she only had five. And the only reason we know that is because they were on the census with her. So probably they got carted out all over the South. And I imagine going to Leah and saying to Leah, great, great, great grandmom Leah, I have good news. God has a wonderful plan for your life. But you are sinful and therefore separated from God. But Jesus died for the penalty, to pay the penalty for your sin. So all you need to do is to pray this little prayer and you get to go to heaven. And I asked myself at the end of that summer, would that good news cause my third great grandmother to jump and shout? Would it cause her to say, hallelujah? And I had to admit the reality that the answer was no. And that, my friends, sent me into third, well, really a whole year of depression and 13 years of searching the scripture to ask the question, what does the gospel have to say to the least of these?